Stuart Isikoff is an author, a scholar, a musician. In 2003, Stuart published a book which, as an effort of scholarship on a relatively niche topic, wasn't exactly the work of someone who was itching for a fight. Its title was, in full, Temperament, How Music Became a Battleground for the Great Minds of Western Civilization. The book covered the history of how musical instruments are tuned and focused on a special kind of tuning called equal temperament. Though the topic was somewhat obscure, the book was well received. In fact, lots of people bought copies. After a full-run printing in the United States, it found a second life in the United Kingdom, and then the Netherlands, Finland, Italy, Japan, Taiwan, China, and most recently, Russia. And yet, despite Stewart's popularity, the book's release caused a surprising, but nowadays common, phenomenon. When this book came out, I was so attacked on the internet that, um, you know, I thought I had, had done something horrible. Who would have expected such reaction to what was essentially the factual history of an obscure topic? But attacks started pouring in from blogs, social media, the Amazon.com comment section. Even reviewers from respected national publications went on the offensive. The book was called Mendacious, a heady celebration of the status quo. One writer went so far as to claim that Stuart Isikoff believed equal temperament to be the final solution, making a thinly veiled comparison to the Third Reich. At first glance, it seems surprising that a book like this could provoke such anger. But this wasn't the first time tuning had been the catalyst for controversy. Ironically, it is exactly these kinds of intellectual dogfights that are chronicled in Isikoff's book. He details 600 years of some of the most famous and respected Western minds wrestling over the proper way to tune an instrument, all while arguing, name-calling, and flinging at each other the same kinds of hyperbolic insults that would end up being flung at Isikoff. Unwittingly, he had entered into an intellectual war that had been raging since the days of Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel. So really, the most surprising thing about all the outrage directed towards Stuart Isikoff is that, if you look closely, it's not actually that surprising at all. Hi, I'm Matthew Billy, and this is Between the Liner Notes, a podcast about music, why it is the way it is, and how it got to be that way. If you walk into a Sam Ash or a Guitar Center today, most of the instruments you see are tuned using equal temperament. Of all the different ways of tuning an instrument, and there are many, equal temperament is indisputably the most popular tuning system out there. But curiously, equal temperament is not popular because it sounds the best. It's popular because of how it fixes one very particular problem. How does a musician tune an instrument so it sounds good in every possible key? So, let's start at the beginning, way, way back in ancient Greece, at the moment the 12 notes we know and love, all the white and black keys on the piano, were discovered. That story begins around 500 BCE with a certain Greek guru you might remember from math class. If we go back to the 6th century BCE and we look at a character like Pythagoras, everybody knows his work, of course, with the right triangles, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. And he's famous for that. Of course, he was much more than that. He was a guru. He walked the streets in white robes and a gold crown, and people said he had magical powers. And so he also came up with a mathematics of musical beauty. By mathematics of musical beauty, Isikoff is referring to the relationships or the distances between the notes of the musical scale. It's uncertain how true the legend is, but it all starts when Pythagoras is out in his white robes and his gold crown taking an afternoon stroll. 
The story goes that he was walking by a blacksmith's shop one day, and he heard the smithy hammering on anvils. And uh, that's when he noticed that sometimes the sounds were wonderful and sometimes they were just cacophonous. According to the story, that had to do, he discovered, with the weights of the hammerheads. And when they were in certain proportions, like two to one, for example, it created the octave. Now, the story is not true because the laws of physics tell us that when you hammer an anvil, it's the anvil that vibrates, not the hammerhead. So the weight of the hammerhead has nothing to do with it. But the story further goes that Pythagoras went home and created these instruments called monochords, single-string instruments. Uh, and if you adjust the length of the string, the pitch changes, just as on a guitar. And he did an experiment. Pythagoras' first experiment was to divide the string in half, and he observed that when the string was plucked, he heard a note that was the same as the original, just higher, like this. That relationship between the noted full string length and the noted half string length is called an octave. Pythagoras continued with his experiment and went on dividing the string in half again and again, giving him more octaves higher and higher. And when he was done, he started with his second experiment. And then on another monochord, he created a series of what we call fifths. That's the proportion three to two. So he went three to two, three to two, three to two, and so on. That musical interval is called the fifth because it's the fifth note of the major scale. And it sounds like... And instead of giving Pythagoras the same note higher and higher up, like the octave, it gave him many new notes. In fact, it gave him exactly 12 new notes. This is one way to derive the 12 notes on the keyboard. Pythagoras would have been fine if he stopped at 12, but he kept going and stumbled on a problem. The 13th note should have matched a note in the first experiment. It should have been exactly the same as the octave Pythagoras created after dividing the string in half eight times. Pythagoras discovered that they weren't the same tone. It was almost as if there was a curvature in musical space, and the two were out of tune with each other. That 13th note should be the same note you get when you divide a string in half eight times. But it's not. It's a little higher than it should be. So, as it turns out, Pythagoras' simple math isn't so simple. It's as if you're taking quarts and liters or centimeters and inches. If you take a ruler of centimeters, a ruler of inches, you can't make them come out exactly even. They do, they're just different forms of measurement. The same is true of octaves and fifths. They're different forms of measurement and they can't arrive at the same place. So the difference between the dough that you eventually reach with octaves and the dough you eventually reach with fifths, the difference between them is known as the Pythagorean comma. The mathematical anomaly called the Pythagorean comma isn't just a problem. It's a huge problem, and there's no way to solve it. It's like nature played a cruel trick on musicians. Not only are the octaves not the same, but the other 12 notes Pythagoras discovered don't fit into an octave range. Making them fit requires fuzzy math and fudge numbers. It's like shaving the edges of the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle to make them fit together. This fudging is what is known as temperament. The term temperament comes from the medieval belief that all things consist of four qualities or humors. Hot, cold, moist, and dry. In order for someone to be healthy, these four humors had to be in balance. People believe that when someone became sick or in a bad mood, it was because their humors were out of whack. This is where the phrase ill-humored, or its opposite, in good humor, come from. 
There were all kinds of weird treatments to balance your humors, and the most extreme was bloodletting. This act of restoring balance was called tempering, or temperament, which literally means the proper mixture. In a similar way, the Pythagorean comma makes music unbalanced, so the term temperament was repurposed to describe attempts to restore balance to the musical scale. But strangely, after Pythagoras discovered the comma, no one really paid attention to it. It's a problem that hid in the closet waiting for someone to open the door, and no one opened that door until the Renaissance, nearly 2,000 years after Pythagoras died. This becomes a problem, this out-of-tuneness becomes a problem only when you have many simultaneous tones sounding at once. Western music is based so much on chords, on harmony, that the, uh, the problem really becomes apparent. And so you have very early music, Gregorian chant, for example, is just simply melody. Um, you really don't have multiple tones sounding at the same time. That is Gregorian chant, which is basically a prayer in Latin that is sung with a melody. Since the fall of the Roman Empire, European composers were mostly writing music for the Roman Catholic Church. And that music was mostly vocal music, where only one note is being sung at a time. Music stayed like this throughout the medieval ages, and finally, when the Renaissance hit, composers began using more than one note at a time. This is an example of a type of vocal music that was popular during the Renaissance called motet. Motet sounds similar to Gregorian chant, but with one huge difference. The choir is singing more than one note at a time. But even with all these notes being stacked on top of each other, the Pythagorean comma still didn't become a problem, yet. When you start to develop music that uses harmony, in the Renaissance, for example, you still have singers um, who can adjust as they go along. They can adjust their voices and uh, go a little higher or a little lower to blend in, to blend together. So basically, singers can work around the Pythagorean comma by changing their tuning as they go along. The comma only becomes a problem with instruments that can't change their tuning. When you have instruments with fixed pitches, and it could be a keyboard or it could be a harp, it could be, um, you know, an organ, let's say, then you don't have that ability that the voices have to adjust a little bit and blend in. And therefore, the dissonances that are created by trying to force an instrument with these fixed pitches to accommodate fifths and pure octaves and pure fourths all at the same time, it can't be done. It just uh, works against nature. So musicians had to begin tempering their tunings, and this is a zero-sum game. Every adjustment made to improve the sound of one interval, which is the distance between two notes, makes another worse. There's no way to tune the 12 notes so they all sound perfect in every key. No matter what you do, some of the keys are going to sound out of tune or dissonant. So musicians had to make a choice and prioritize which intervals and which keys were most important to them. Here's an analogy. Imagine you bought a house. The house has 12 equal-sized rooms, no closets, attic, or garage. In an ideal world, all 12 rooms will be kept clean and clutter-free so you can enjoy being in all 12 rooms of your new house. But this is impossible because you have lots of stuff you refuse to throw away. And that stuff needs to be stored somewhere. The only place you can put it is somewhere in the 12 rooms. How to divide up your stuff amongst those 12 rooms could also be called tempering your living space. The specifics of how this should be done became the fault line in the temperament wars. 
On one side of that line were a group of people who believed that Pythagoras's pure ratios should be maintained as much as possible because that's how nature or God intended. Tuning systems that use pure ratios are designed so that most of the dissonance is stuffed into a few not-so-popular keys, leaving the other keys pure. It's like sticking most of the clutter into two rooms, making them totally unusable. Then, you shut the door and never go inside. Here's an example of a piece using a pure Pythagorean tuning system. It's a Bach prelude in A-flat major, which is a key that contains a lot of the dissonant intervals. Many of those notes sound sour and out of tune. Now, listen to how the sour notes disappear when I slide the prelude to the key of C major, a key that contains none of the dissonant intervals. On the opposing side of the fault line were composers who thought it was silly they couldn't use every key. They wanted to be creatively adventurous and wander into any key without having to worry about the limitations of their instrument's temperament. Many temperaments were invented to accomplish this, but the one that would end up being the most popular and used today in most concert halls is equal temperament. This system divides up the octave into 12 equal parts, distributing the dissonance equally between all keys. It's like distributing your clutter equally amongst your house's 12 rooms. None of the rooms are perfect, but they're all usable. I'm going to return the same Bach prelude to its original key of A-flat major, tuned using equal temperament. The sour notes you heard before are no longer there, but some of the emotion and smoothness felt with the Pythagorean tuning is lost. Like I said before, temperament is a zero-sum game, and in order to gain something, you have to sacrifice something. The best temperament is entirely dependent on what the composer wants to use and how many keys they want to travel. But annoyingly, the choice wasn't as simple as using your ears and making a decision. Music gets caught in the middle of a much bigger debate over how the world is put together. People once believed that God designed the world using simple mathematical ratios, and those ratios govern how the world works. Music was thought to be the sonic manifestation of those simple ratios, so understanding how music worked meant you were a little closer to understanding God's grand design. This is why the Catholic Church and other idealist thinkers preferred temperaments that maintained Pythagoras' simple ratios. It's just as you find in almost any area of life. You have people with an ideological idea of how things should be. And you have other people who look around and say, okay, but this is how they really are. And there's often this huge fight between the two. So you have tuning proponents early on, and, and I think even today, who say nature intended tuning to be this, because they realize that in nature, you have a vibrating string or a vibrating object, that it produces these pure Pythagorean intervals, where you get pure octaves and fifths and fourths. And very early on, from the second century, the church becomes involved and says, well, God wanted it this way. And in fact, you have Clement of Alexandria in the second century saying that, that it was Christ who made this decision, that musical intervals should be wow. in these pure proportions. So to change these intervals, to say, no, I want to change the tuning, well, you're risking burning in hell. It's not just simply a, an aesthetic question. Composers wanted to experiment more, so if they didn't have to rely on the church for their income, they had no problem shrugging off church doctrine and risking burning in hell. 
The problem for Western composers is that the music, as the music became harmonically sophisticated, composers started to want to wander from one key to another, use the entire range of the instrument um, in playing all kinds of different harmonies and so on. Once you do that, these pure intervals no longer will work with the music that you're trying to perform. The flaws become apparent. So the proponents of this ideology of a faith-based tuning had to come up against people who say, yes, but I like my Chopin to sound good. At one end of the spectrum, you had the idealists, and at the other end, you had composers who wanted to be adventurous. But those were not the only two groups arguing over tuning systems. Every educated person in Europe had an opinion. Not many people were educated, but if you were, you had something to say about tuning. You see, if someone was privileged enough to attend one of the universities, they were taught music theory as part of the core curriculum. Taking a class in music theory was as common as taking a history class today, so everyone became an armchair expert. And if a public argument broke out, it was discussed as much as the final episode of Mad Men. And these arguments happened a lot, so there was plenty to discuss. Usually, the weapon of choice was a book or a letter. It's similar to the way two celebrities feuding on Twitter looks today, but with more than just 140 characters. There are many examples of tuning feuds, too many to cover in just one podcast episode, so we won't get into all of them, but we will cover two. Mostly, these feuds were limited to written attacks, but sometimes the arguments went beyond just words and became violent, like in the so-called... Battle of the Organs. In 1684, two organ makers were in competition to build an organ for the London Temple Church. Their names were Bernard Smith and Renatus Harris. Bernard Smith designed an organ that had more keys than what a keyboard normally has. He split certain keys down the middle, and the performer would choose which one to use based on what key the music was in. This was an organ designer's way of solving the Pythagorean comma. His opponent, Renatus Harris, used a standard keyboard. The competition was supposed to be decided after two organists chosen by the designers each played the organs. This never happened. Legend has it that the night before the performance, Harris's followers broke into the church and sabotaged the opposition's organ by cutting his bellows, rendering it totally unplayable. Unfortunately for Harris, the competition didn't end that day, and when it finally did, Bernard Smith was declared the winner. Smith's organ remained in the Temple Church until a bomb destroyed it during World War II. But when it comes to violence and vandalism, the battle of the organs is the exception rather than the rule. Most temperament battles never escalated beyond pen and paper, or more specifically, quill and parchment. But even those could get pretty heated. For instance, the famous feud between Galileo's father, Vincenzo Galilei, and a Franciscan priest named Giuseppe Zarlino these two men were opposites in both appearance and personality. Zarlino was a well-groomed, distinguished-looking man, dressed all in black with a pointy nose. Galilei was a thick-bearded, surly-looking man who could have auditioned to play the dwarf in Lord of the Rings, and that's not an observation about his height. Through hard work and patience, Zarlino had earned the position of director of music at St. Mark's Basilica in Venice, Italy. This position came with prestige and power, and he wanted to keep it, which meant keeping other powerful people in the Catholic Church happy. At that time, the Catholic Church was in the quagmire of the Protestant Reformation and trying to devise a countermeasure. For Vincenzo Galilei, there was no upside to being loyal to the Church. 
He spent most of his time hanging around Florence, Italy, where the Medici banking empire was flourishing. The culture there was progressive. They celebrated ideas that were new and broke with church doctrine, so Galilei fit right in. But not having the comfort of being employed by the church meant he had to find an independent patron to make ends meet. In the beginning, their relationship was friendly. When the two first met in 1563, Galilei was already an accomplished lute player. Zarlino had done pretty well for himself, too. Zarlino was a great theorist in the 16th century, and, um, and Galilei had actually been a student of his. But wasn't satisfied with mm, the positions that Zarlino had taken. Zarlino had basically taken the conservative Pythagorean position, except he made a few changes. Galilei, like his son Galileo, took no prisoners. He was a, he was a guy who just wanted to find out the truth, use science the way he could at that time, and um, dispel any wrong thinking. After Galilei finished studying with Zarlino, he wound up in Florence and became friends with a group of progressive thinkers who had been busy translating and studying ancient Greek philosophical texts. Ironically, these old and dusty Greek books provided a fresh way of thinking about music, and Vincenzo Galilei discovered that there was much more to temperament than what the Catholic Church and Zarlino had been presenting. And he came up with the idea that all of these uh, church-based theories were hogwash. And um, the reason that a good choir could sing well is that they kept changing the tuning as they went along uh, to blend together. And all this number doctrine was silly. So uh, Galilei ended up turning on his teacher Zarlino and saying, this is all nonsense. God doesn't care whether your fifth is this size or this size. Nearly 20 years after studying with Zarlino, Galilei goes on the attack and writes a book called Dialogue of Ancient and Modern Music. In it, he refuted many of Zarlino's teachings and blatantly says that God does not care how an instrument was tuned. His attacks, however, are kind of passive-aggressive. He never refers to Zarlino by name and always calls him my former teacher. That is until the index where he added an entry for Zarlino's mistakes and lists more pages next to it than any other index entry. Zarlino had a reputation to maintain, so in 1588 he fired back with a book of his own. This book is loaded with snark. Throughout it, he sarcastically refers to Galilei as my loving student or my former disciple. He writes that his student lifted his ideas from someone else and wasn't talented enough to think of them on his own. At one point, Zarlino even writes that his student learned nothing while studying with him and his efforts were a complete waste of time. There are also a couple of sections of the book where he kisses up to his bosses. For instance, Zarlino dedicated the book to the Pope, and the first chapter discusses the virtues of the Church's Counter-Reformation initiatives. So now, the gloves were off. Galilei publishes another book one year later in 1589, which not only uses Zarlino's name in the text, it's prominently in the title. In the first chapter, he accuses Zarlino of more than just poor music theory. He accuses him of sabotage. Galilei writes that when he sent his first book to Venice to be published, Zarlino used his power of position to persuade the publisher not to print it. He calls Zarlino's group of friends an ignorant clique and writes that taking the side of church doctrine is a feeble prop he uses to maintain prestige, and if taken away, his arguments would all go to perdition. With feuds like this, there isn't a winner and a loser, or even a clear ending. Vincenzo Galilei spent the rest of his life writing attack pieces on Zarlino. 
He blamed him for his lack of a patron and financial success and held that grudge till he died. The writings of both men were mandatory readings for any serious music theorist for many years. Some even picked up where Zarlino and Galilei had left off and began feuding about the exact same thing. Whether they were involved in feuds or not, every philosopher and every scientist had an opinion about temperament, and sometimes they weren't really qualified to have that opinion. Rene Descartes, for instance, the man who coined the term, I think, therefore I am, the first book he ever published was about temperament, which was an odd choice for a topic because he was tone deaf. He couldn't hear the difference between a consonance and a dissonance. Most of the others had better ears, but the theories they came up with were a little far-fetched. Some of these scientists, in trying to prove the connection, this Pythagorean connection between music and the universe, came up with all kinds of uh, interesting but wacky theories. So that Newton, for example, he looked at the rainbow that comes from light passing through a prism and said that the distances between the colors replicated the pure musical scale. Of course, it doesn't at all, but Newton was convinced. And then you have Kepler saying that the distances between the planets in the solar system replicated the distances between the pure uh, notes of the pure musical scale. And again, you know, he was completely wrong, but it offered some kind of a scientific connection for them between the way music should be made and the way God made the universe. Johannes Kepler's observations didn't stop with planetary motion. He also came up with one analogy that's mm, kind of awkward. Here's a reading from Temperament. Kepler applied his mathematical acumen to the issue of music's ability to represent human emotion. Among his conclusions was the proposition that major thirds are inherently masculine and minor thirds feminine. When singing Do, Re, Mi, encompassing the distance of a major third from Do to Mi, he claimed, one feels the urge to continue and leap up to the next scale note, Fa. Clearly, asserted Kepler, the note Mi, that major third above Do, is active and full of efforts. In his view, the action of reaching from me up to fa, simulated a male ejaculation. Singing the minor third, on the other hand, the distance between re and fa, sounded, when rendering the notes re, mi, fa, induces a desire to fall back down to me. Thus, he proclaimed, the minor third is passive. It tends to sink toward the ground like a hen preparing to be mounted by a cock. I don't hear any of that when those notes are played, but musical aesthetics are highly subjective. Over time, people stopped attaching celestial meaning to music and began to view music as simply music and temperament as simply tuning. This newfound detachment from the cosmic spheres gave equal temperament a chance to be experimented with, and during the 19th century, it began to shed its marginalized status. Composers like Chopin, Debussy, and Schubert began creating pieces that had so many key changes that equal temperament was the most practical system to use. Through a combination of factors, such as increased usage, less resistance from the church, and the invention of improved tuning methods, the once unpopular tuning system slowly transformed into the most popular and most widely used in the concert halls. It went from being the girl no one wanted to ask to the prom, to the prom queen, and a little bit of a bully. Modern-day instruments are almost always tuned to equal temperament. Digital instruments that can change their tuning with a few mouse clicks always default to equal temperament. Even music that wasn't written for equal temperament is being performed in it. All of this has caused some people to believe that equal temperament has monopolized music. 
But when you're the prom queen, some people are always going to hate you. And in this case, the haters are loud. They say that listening to Mozart in equal temperament is like viewing the Mona Lisa through dark sunglasses. They call it the wonder bread of tuning. The composer Terry Riley even said that equal temperament is emblematic of the Western world's driven aggression and imperialistic tendencies. And even after the Catholic Church has accepted equal temperament, some people still believe that it's a departure from what God intended, and the dissonance is actually harming us physically. People like author and activist Leonard Horowitz have written about how the out-of-tuneness inherent in equal temperament is interfering with our body's natural vibrations and causing our minds to be stressed out and unfocused. But whatever their specific reasons are, there's a large group of people who resent equal temperament's domination of the concert halls and the radio stations and are looking for someone to pin their frustrations on. When Stuart Isikoff published his book, he became the perfect target. I was attacked mercilessly, and, um, and there are still people who want to hang me from a tree. As I said before, a critic from The Village Voice called it a heady celebration of the status quo. Another writer compared it to a propaganda piece from the Third Reich. And those without established writing careers use their favorite digital outlet for self-expression, the comment section on the internet. And they used all the ones they could find, the comments under reviews, YouTube videos, blog posts, and the Amazon.com book listings. One person wrote, The author's history is suspect. He treats equal temperament as some great puzzle and religious battle, which was fought over millennia and finally won by the good guys, a.k.a. the equal temperament crowd. It wasn't fought over millennia, as a credible idea is pretty darn recent, and it's not all that clear the good guys won. Another commenter claimed that there are gaping factual errors on nearly every page and is wildly dumbed down and grotesquely inaccurate. This person didn't give specific examples. One reviewer even accused Isikoff of being part of a greater conspiracy, saying, This writing feeds what many consider to be a conspiracy of disinformation. My experience of 33 years as a piano technician who has never tuned a piano in equal temperament since 1989 is that the ideal, perfectly equalized scale of a piano is virtually unsupportable and therefore never has truly existed. It has only been believed in. And of course, like any curious author, Isakoff read those comments. I would go onto Amazon and see people making comments about the book on Amazon, and they were uh, idiotic comments and uh, filled with vitriol. Uh, from people who didn't know the subject and probably didn't read the book. I know many, so one person went on Amazon and said, I refuse to read this book, and he gave me a terrible rating. So, you know, it's funny to rate a book that you haven't read. Um, and the people who criticized me had sort of blanket negative things to say, but not one of them pointed out an actual factual error. There were no factual errors. So it made it a little hard to take. But there are good reviews, too. In fact, they far outnumber the bad by a wide margin. One commenter even wrote, This book was a goldmine of interesting information on the links between science, music, art, and math. If I was still teaching school, temperament would be a core book for the development of my lessons in any of the subjects above to bring alive my classes. I was excited to talk about it with my friends today. And as for the criticism that temperament was written as part of a conspiracy, when I interviewed Stuart Isikoff, I didn't see it. He told me he doesn't believe equal temperament should be used in every situation. It's just one possible solution to a problem that has no perfect solution. In fact, in many cases, it's not the best choice at all. He believes that pieces that were composed for other tunings should be performed in those tunings, and composers should feel free to experiment with whatever tuning they want. 
but there is no doubt that equal temperament has allowed composers to use any key and combination of chords freely without temperament getting in the way. And at the end of the interview, when I asked him how he felt about his critics, he concluded with this. If you don't like equal temperament and you love other tunings, great, celebrate the thing that you love. The show was produced and edited by me, Matthew Billy. Jason Silverman created the graphics and website and helped edit the narration. Laura Vandiver assisted with production. Special thanks to Stuart Isikoff for coming on the show. For more information about him and his books, you can visit stuartisikoff.net. His book, Temperament, How Music Became a Battleground for the Great Minds of Western Civilization, is available at most online bookstores. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to podcasts. You can also find us at our website, betweenthelinernotes.com, Facebook, and Twitter. Feel free to write to us. We'd love to hear from you. And thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Between the Liner Notes.